Highlands Community Church, thank you so much for your grace toward me. Thank you for sharing with me stories about how this incredible book is impacting lives around our church. After we studied Song of Songs last week, there was a young man who shared with me that it was time to propose to his girlfriend. And so he went from church where he studied Song of Songs to go propose to his girlfriend that day. Would you type in the comments right now, praise God, because there are young marriages springing to life around Highlands Community Church. I've officiated weddings during a pandemic because God is bringing about new families, new pictures of the gospel between husband and wife all around Highlands Community Church. I've got more really cool stories to share with you about how this unlikely Hebrew love song inspired by the Holy Spirit is bringing about gospel impact in marriages in our church. Our small group curriculum, Explore the Bible, is taking students and adults through chapter two, verse 15, through the fifth verse of chapter three, okay? The end of chapter two, telling us to catch the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, take care of the small problems that, that uh, ruin our ability to be well-prepared for marriage. And then it ends with uh, the second iteration of the Shulamite woman's clarion call and charge to the daughters of Jerusalem, the young women, the chorus in this musical number that is the song of songs saying, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. And now in today's text, you're gonna see this really, really exaggerated almost uh, exhalation of the respectability of Solomon, who was possibly the lover in the text. And then you're gonna see a husband look at the body of his bride and systematically, just piece for piece with specifics, beginning with her eyes, express love and affection upon her and then let the young ears in the room know that if they think this is about people eating fruit, that it is about people eating fruit. And if you think it's about people eating fruit, evidently you're not yet old enough to fully grasp Song of Songs. But husbands and wives, people currently gifted with singleness, we understand what's happening in this text. My skeptical friend, this could be, this could be misconstrued as a fascinating literary study on the contextualization of Hebrew imagery and the, the practice of hermeneutics on an Old Testament book that would help us grasp what it means when a man tells a woman that her hair looks like a flock of goats from Mount Gilead. It also, I mean, you, you're going to have to give it up to this text. This, this is, especially when you grasp those context pieces, the most exquisite love poem ever written. It is a love song that puts our pop music utterly to shame. I mean, you've got to give it up. You've got to step back and look at the beauty of the Word of God here. But I don't want you to miss, I don't want you to miss the greater significance of this book because the love that this husband has for his wife is significantly prophetic to the love that Christ has for his church. And I'll show you that biblically. Also, I want you to keep a running tally if you're taking notes. Count in the comment section the number of times we see myrrh and gold and frankincense, the gifts that the wise men brought to the young Jesus. Song of Songs, chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, spoken by possibly a narrator as the CSB uh, attributes it, possibly also by the Shulamite woman herself. Listen to the text. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, scented with myrrh and frankincense from every fragrant powder of the merchant? 
Look, Solomon's bed surrounded by 60 warriors from the mighty men of Israel. All of them are skilled with swords and trained in warfare. Each has his sword at his side to guard against the terror of the night. King Solomon made a carriage for himself with wood from Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior inlaid with love by the young women of Jerusalem. Go out, young women of Zion, and gaze at King Solomon wearing the crown his mother placed on him on the day of his wedding, the day of his heart's rejoicing. So again, you could attribute these words either to the narrator, as the CSB does, or possibly the Shulamite woman calling the daughters of Jerusalem to look at how amazing Solomon is, and if you, especially if you interpret Solomon to be her husband, then it all makes sense either way. Either interpretation is accurate to me. Let's look at the text itself, though. We see him described like he's scented by myrrh and frankincense, that Solomon is scented with myrrh and frankincense. Solomon, as we talked about last week, was far from perfect, okay? He fell, and he fell hard, but there were still Christ represented in him, Christ foreshadowed in him. It was still Solomon, this deeply imperfect man, who would invite the Spirit of God to anoint and fill the temple where Old Testament worship would take place in Jerusalem. It was still Solomon who, by the prophecies given to his father David around his birth, would foreshadow the one who would sit on the throne and whose throne would never end, whose reign would never end. This son of David who would forever be on the throne over Israel. You could see the perfection of Jesus hinted at in the prophecies about Solomon, though Solomon was imperfect. When God told David he was going to have a son, Solomon, you could tell there was more to it than just the boy himself, that he was significant and he was prophetic and he was a foreshadowing of the Christ to come, who would have all the wisdom of Solomon and in eternity would have greater wealth than Solomon, though he had no place to rest his head on earth. That the wisdom that we see typified in Solomon Man, it had nothing on the Logos, who is Jesus, the ultimate embodiment of all wisdom, the one through whom the universe was created. Watch for these parallels between Solomon and Jesus. Solomon would let us down. Jesus is the only person who's ever not going to let you down. I've said it a hundred times from my platform. If I haven't let you down yet, just give me five minutes. All right, if you attribute to this fallible man the glory that really comes from this text— your, your faith is misplaced. Let it be in God. He's the only one who never fails. He's the only one who never fails. If I haven't failed you yet, just give me time. But God will never fail. He'll never fail. He'll never fail. If you're looking for Solomon, the man himself, to typify that perfection, then he's going to let you down. But if you see through Solomon, the one he foreshadowed, the one Solomon pointed us to, Jesus will never fail you. He will never fail you. He will never fail you. You can see in verse 6, the myrrh and the frankincense. You can see in verse 10, the gold. Why were these gifts given to the young Jesus? And they're named over and over again in the text we're going to read today in Song of Songs. The gold is because Jesus was born king. I mean, Solomon was born king too, but why is that significant? Because the gold was given to Jesus when he didn't have a throne room. He didn't have a palace. All right, his earthly father Joseph was a carpenter, not King David. So it's significant to give to young Jesus gold, indicating that he is king. Why give him frankincense? That's, a, that's something that's used in burials to cover the smell of a decomposing body. Why would you give that to a young child? Well, it's because he was born to die. Now, as you'll see more in our upcoming study of Isaiah, 
Why give him myrrh? Because he was born to be crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We'll see this on Isaiah 53. It's a prophecy about Jesus. Gold, because he's king. Frankincense, because he was born to die. Myrrh, because he would be crushed for our sins. Now this myrrh is going to come up multiple times. Frankincense is going to come up multiple times. You're going to see these references to distant herbs and aloes and spices, spices and, and delicacies as the lovers convey to one another metaphorical correlations between their positive attributes and the positive attributes of given myrrhs and aloes and spices and balsams. In verses 7 and 6, or uh, in verses 7 and 8, this woman is perfectly safe with this man. When it says that he's surrounded by the mighty men of Israel, I, it reminds me of one of my favorite people in the Bible. In fact, probably my second favorite person in the whole Bible besides Jesus is Benaiah. All that we really know about Benaiah was that he walked down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. That's about all we know. That was his resume. He shows that resume, Ugh, resume, Benaiah. And, and he he's becomes one of David, David's mighty men. And they're looking at his resume, and it says, it says here that he went into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. That's pretty good. I think we need some, we need some dudes like this. You're hired. And then Benaiah says, ugh. And that's in the Jesse Campbell translation. So Benaiah is one of David's mighty men. Now, this is a song, and it's drawing from imagery that's familiar. So it's possible that, it's possible that as Solomon wrote it, he remembered Benaiah, one of his father's mighty men, and describes that in the parade that surrounded the king, that these mighty men surrounded David this woman is 100% safe with this man. There's something to be said for that, men. It is a good thing that your wife would feel safe with you. Safe from outside harm, yes. Okay, there's one way to go about it. You could apply this scripture quite directly. Okay, we've got enough men in our men's ministry that are just unhinged enough, that they're skilled enough with the sword, or at least they estimate themselves to be. You could get about 60 of them, surround the house, and sleep pretty well that night, or maybe not sleep as well because of them. It's good that a woman would feel physically safe with a man. It's good that a man, in obeying what scripture says in Ephesians 5, to give himself up for his wife, would sacrifice his life to save the life of his bride. This is a good thing. But don't miss another attribute here. She feels not only safe because of the men who are outside of the bed, she feels safe with the man in her bed. She's not only safe from outside harm, she's safe from harm from him. Men, if you've committed an act of domestic violence, against your bride. Repent today. Repent today. Let it be known today. Confess it right away. Right away. Walk in repentance. Establish accountability. Be transformed by the power of the gospel. Give your life to Jesus and be saved forevermore. Let it be said that the women in our lives can feel safe from outside harm, feel safe from harm from us as well. This woman in Song of Songs is absolutely safe. Look at verse 9. King Solomon made a carriage for himself with wood from Lebanon. He made its posts of silver and its back of gold and its seat of purple, the color of royalty. You see the gold there? So now we already have gold and frankincense and myrrh. Its interior is inlaid with love by the young women of Jerusalem. So 
The people who installed the upholstery in this thing did so with love. They did so with love. Go out, young women of Zion, and gaze at King Solomon, wearing the crown his mother placed on him on the day of his wedding, the day, uh, the day of his heart's rejoicing. So depending on the chronology that you employ as you interpret Song of Songs, uh, it's important to know that the couple is married as of chapter 4, which is coming up in the next verse. And if Solomon is the lover in your view, then this verse just harkened back to their wedding day, which would also align with the interpretation that Solomon is the lover. And that, would, uh, that could also mean that the verses we just read should be attributed to the woman, the Shulamite, uh, if not the narrator. So you can see there's a diversity of interpretive options here, and they all fall within biblical orthodoxy. Let's continue in the text. How beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. Behind your veil, perhaps a wedding veil, your eyes are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from washing, each one bearing twins, and none has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet cord. Your mouth is lovely. Behind your veil, again, we see that Solomon receives a crown on his wedding day, and now we see him make two references to a veil, and now the man is speaking. It's likely, in my interpretation, Solomon on his wedding day speaking to his bride. Behind your veil, your brow is like a slice of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, constructed in layers. A thousand shields are hung in it, and all of them the shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will make my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are absolutely beautiful, my darling. There is no imperfection in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Watch the multiple repetitions as a rhythmic device in the Hebrew for a song, because it's Song of Songs. Descend from the peak of Amana, the summit of Mount Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of the lions, from the mountains of the leopards. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captured my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful your caresses are, my sister, my bride. Your caresses are much better than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any balsam. Your lips drip sweetness like the honeycomb, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. <clears throat> Let's talk about this text because he is looking at his bride, right, behind the veil, and he's going to lift the veil back. He's going to unseal the locked garden. And he is expressing beautiful, deep, heartfelt love for her. And gentlemen, take note of this. He starts with her eyes. Where are your priorities, brother? He starts with her eyes. Your eyes are doves. We've heard him say this one before. Apparently she likes it. He said it again. Your eyes are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats. That's pretty weird. Let's put on the glasses of the original recipients. And remember from the opening chapters that they're using outdoor imagery all over this thing, that he's shepherding flocks and she's working in a vineyard and they see one another outdoors. And so to a shepherd, a flock of goats from Mount Gilead was a dream come true. Now in our context, a flock of goats from any mountain running rampant in your yard is a massive liability and gardening disaster and a mess to clean up and an annoyance, but also a pretty good 
a pretty good Instagram post. <laughs> but in their context, to describe a flock of goats from Mount Gilead, man, Gilead was associated with some pretty amazing stuff. It's likely that the goats there were of high quality as far as goats go, I guess. Now that context is far removed from us, but there are other things about Gilead you need to know. When God had pronounced his coming wrath upon Judah, Jeremiah, the prophet, in chapter 8, verse 22, asked, is there not a balm in Gilead? Meaning, is there not some source of healing? That same balm of Gilead would be evoked in the later, uh, later in the prophecy uh, of Jeremiah, pronouncing woe upon Egypt. To say that there is a balm in Gilead was to refer to an unknown species of plant, but it was also known within the Muslim world as the balsam of Mecca. It is uh, perhaps attributed to, to Camaphora myrrh. It's similar to myrrh itself, which is a resin produced by dried out tree sap, which when crushed, releases a fragrance. Again, the myrrh that was given to baby Jesus was significant because he was born to be crushed for our iniquities, to atone for our sins. So this reference to Gilead is fascinating. All right, today, there's a pharmaceutical company called Gilead. They're totally drawing upon this right here, Mount Gilead. You also see the balsam come up in chapter 10. Let's look at how he moves from the eyes to the hair which flows down, the teeth, in verse 2, like a flock of newly shorn, meaning they've just had their buzz cuts, and so they're down to the roots of the hair, which is naturally more white. Moreover, they've come up from the washing, so they're especially white. The longer that the fleece gets, the more it absor absorbs the dust and the dirt and gets grass caught it and stuff like that. But if they've been shorn, that's been shaved down, they've just been washed, it's especially white. To say that she had particularly white teeth using this imagery is, 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 is to say he's just complimenting her teeth. All right, so husbands, don't tell your wife they got sheep teeth. <laughs> just compliment her smile. And do you, do you get this, this language too that each one is bearing twins? What does that mean? Well, if you've got... One tooth right here, it's probably got a twin over here. If you've got another tooth over here, it's probably got its twin over here. Right? She's got all of her teeth side to side, and none of it has lost its young. Okay? He's complimenting her, complimenting her teeth because they're all there. <laughs> Each one with its twin. None of, it, none of them missing their young. All of them like newly shorn and washed sheep. He's complimenting her smile. Everybody take your phone out right now and text your parents. I don't care how old you are. Thank them for taking you to the dentist when you were a kid. Thank them for giving you braces when you were younger. Give Maury DeWitt a hug because she was a dental hygienist who did this ministry. And apparently, look at how privileged we all are. If you just have all of your teeth in modern history, that makes you worthy of marrying the king in ancient biblical times. So we are all incredibly blessed and we didn't know it. Don't give your dentist a hard time. Now he's gone from the eyes to the hair to the teeth and now lips in verse three. Your lips are like a scarlet cord, meaning he's pointing out how scarlet red her lips are. Your mouth is lovely. Behind your veil, right? Again, this is possible that he's speaking to her on their wedding day and she's still wearing her veil. <clears throat> your brow is like a slice of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Again, Solomon would have had immense respect for the Tower of David. He would have conveyed, to, he would conveyed things to the Tower of David that he held in high regard. 
as a gift and demonstration of God's sovereign blessing upon someone. So we have to contextualize. You have to interpret this analogy between this woman's neck and the Tower of David covered with the shields of warriors the way that Solomon would feel about the tower of his father, the one who was the man after God's own heart, God's anointed man, imperfect though he was. All right, verse five, your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. This is, this is imagery that is deliberate and that is poetic, that is tasteful actually, and it's, it's expressing the genuine love as he started with her eyes and now he's arrived in verse five. Now verse six, <clears throat> this is steamy stuff. This is important. We're gonna talk about this verse. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will make my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are absolutely beautiful, my darling. There is no imperfection in you. Christian music artist, when is somebody going to write a song about that verse? <laughs> I once had a discussion with a well-educated authority and Catholic theologian who was of the genuine belief that intimacy and her interpretation was to be reserved exclusively for the purposes of reproduction. And so recreational, as it were, intimacy between a husband and wife had no place in her theological view. And when I brought this verse up, it led to a more rich and robust discussion. It is to say, until the day breaks, until the shadows flee, I will make my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. This is passionate intimacy until the sun comes up. I mean, that is just drinking deep of caresses, drinking deep of intimacy between a husband and a wife, literally all night long, poetically, until the day breaks and the shadows flee. All right, somebody write that song. Man, called for a baby boom back in January. You got time on your hands if you're quarantined. Look at verse seven. We're gonna come back to this one at the end. You are absolutely beautiful, my darling, meaning her beauty is absolute. My darling, there is no imperfection in you. These are two ways to say the same thing, that her beauty is absolute, that she is absolutely beautiful, that there is no imperfection in her. There is rich theological significance in this verse. Look at verse, uh, verses eight through 11, and you're gonna see some interpretive keys for what will follow in chapter five. Note that he conveys her lips to the sweetness of the honeycomb. And he says, honey and milk are under your tongue, verse 11. Now in chapter five, we're gonna read something. I'm gonna call you back to this verse to understand it. Verse 12, it's possible at this point too that we have now pulled the veil back and you're gonna see husband and wife be passionately intimate with one another in this beautiful poetry, these lyrics of this love song. My sister, my bride, you are a locked garden, a locked garden and a sealed spring. Your branches are a paradise of pomegranates with choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh. You keeping count of these? They're everywhere. Frankincense, myrrh, myrrh and frankincense, frankincense and myrrh and aloes with all the best spices. You are a garden spring, a well of flowing water streaming from Lebanon. He is referred to her as, her as a locked garden, a sealed spring. 
They refer to their, their love this way. This metaphor will come up later in the book as well. To refer to the exclusivity of their love that is sealed off from others is another reason why I interpret this as Solomon writing about his first wife. Because he could not rightly and in good conscience refer to his intimacy with his wife as a locked garden if in fact he had a harem. Rather, my interpretation is that the daughters of Jerusalem, the young women in this text, this is a chorus in a musical. You have the lead voice of the woman, the secondary voice of the man, and then the tertiary voice of the chorus that chimes in. I don't believe that that is Solomon's harem, but it is still possible and the text is still perfect, even despite Solomon's own shortcomings in this regard. So we're keeping up to date with our count of myrrh and frankincense. We've seen gold in this text as well. The woman speaks again in verse 16. It's so beautiful. Listen. Awaken, north wind. Come, south wind. Blow on my garden and spread the fragrance of its spices. Let my love come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. We see this is consistent with the teaching of Paul in the New Testament, who gave a radical radical teaching to husbands and wives regarding their intimacy to say, husbands, your body doesn't belong to just you. It belongs to your bride as well. And brides, your body doesn't belong just to you anymore. It belongs to your husband as well. Now, there was a, there was a cultural stigma that associated wives as mere property in that day and that age. And so for Paul, especially to punch husbands in the gut with this important, important teaching that your body doesn't just belong to you. It belongs to your bride as well. It's consistent with the way that this husband and wife speak about one another and their intimacy. She refers to her body as his garden to eat its choicest fruits. And then he responds in chapter five. Look at the passion here. I have come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather my myrrh with my spices. I eat my honeycomb with my honey. I drink my wine with my milk. Right? My parents have these beehives at their house, these boxes with bees in them, and my brother and I would dare each other to run up and kick them and run off without getting stung. Well, when you're eating honeycomb with the honey, you must really seriously want some honey. What does he mean by honey and milk? Well, let's remember back to what we just read in the previous chapter, when he in Chapter four, verse 11 says this, your lips drip with sweetness like the honeycomb, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. To refer to honey and milk under her tongue and to say that he eats his honeycomb with his honey, drinks his wine with his milk, is to say that this is what we would call a French kiss. But apparently the French didn't invent it. Apparently it's actually a Hebrew kiss. Sorry, Frenchies. <laughs> look at verse, look at verse one, where the narrator possibly speaks again. Chapter five, eat friends, drink, be intoxicated with caresses. It is good and God anointed and by design that a husband and wife who have made a covenant before God and man, that their marriage would be a picture of the gospel would express their love to one another in the superlative and the highest expression possible to show their love to one another through their intimacy. In the course of this beautiful outpouring of love and affection that this husband has for his wife, 
He said something I want to go back to in chapter 4, verse 7. You are absolutely beautiful, my darling. There is no imperfection in you. I think that this husband looking upon his bride and calling her perfect is theologically significant. All of creation began with the dawn of humanity at a wedding. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. No, God did not ever actually ordain polygamy. That's why two become one. And this was the original design that was laid out. From here, that wedding, that marriage would be the first of all marriages. Eve would be the first bride among all brides. And there's a beautiful covenant that's made, even as curses are pronounced upon creation, there's foreshadowings of the gospel to come. This first marriage of all marriages would lay the groundwork and that same marriage metaphor would come up in the prophets where the prophets of God would refer to the people of God as the bride. Even Hosea was told, you're going to take on a bride who's going to be unfaithful to you and you're going to take her back again and that's going to be a picture to the people of God. Look, even though you forsook me and you worshiped other gods, you're going to come back again. I'm going to accept you back home again. Even the names of his kids were significant prophetically to this. The first miracle of Jesus took place at a wedding. While Jesus was teaching about communion, he foreshadowed the wedding feast to come where he would drink wine anew with us one day. When Paul gives us the teachings of Ephesians 5, the most practical teachings in the Bible on how marriage works, now it's a picture of Christ and the church, he reiterated the same theme. And then the whole story ends. Spoiler alert, we as the church are the bride and we are presented spotless, without blemish, our sins washed away. Every wrong thing we've ever done is made right forevermore. And we can look Jesus face to face. Though we were once sinful, the gospel makes us whiter than snow. We're gonna study the prophet of Isaiah. You're gonna see, come now, God says to us, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be washed whiter than snow. This is why brides wear white. In the deep south, there's a tradition that says it's because she kept her virginity until her marriage. Well, my wife and I did that, but we still believe that every bride should wear white because even brides who keep their virginity have other sins. Come on now, let's not be legalists here. It's not for the sinlessness of the woman who walks the aisle. It's for what she represents when she walks the aisle. She represents the hope of all the saved, the work of the gospel upon sinners like you and I. She wears white because that's the color of our souls before God. Like David in Psalm 50, Solomon's own father prayed, cleanse me with his and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. When the bride wears white, she represents the church washed white by the work of the gospel, atoned for by the blood that was shed by Jesus. And the beautiful reunion that is described between the bride of Christ, that's us, and the bridegroom himself, that's Jesus. We will look him in the face and see our Savior eye to eye where he will provide for us. He's going to prepare a place for us and we will be made new forevermore and live in perfection with the bridegroom forever. That's you, Highlands Community Church. Now in that, there is instruction to husbands and wives. Ephesians 5, verse 25, in telling husbands who are called to represent Christ in their marriages, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy holy 
cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In Song of Songs, when this man looks at his wife and says, you are absolutely beautiful, my darling. There is no imperfection in you. One day, because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ for sinners like me and sinners like you, he will look upon us and say, you are absolutely beautiful, my church. There is no imperfection in you. And that's accomplished only by the atoning work of Jesus. My skeptical friend, that's only possible by the blood of Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. May he look upon you that day when he says those beautiful words, there is no imperfection in you. But you can't do it on your own. You can't, you cannot commit acts of righteousness to offset your past sins. We're saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. This is not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so that none of us can boast. He makes us clean. He atones for our sin. He alone did the work of salvation by going to the cross. He alone rose again and there's nobody else who's ever come back from the grave. Only he, our bridegroom, Jesus. May he look upon you that day the way that this groom looks upon his bride on this day and says there is no imperfection in you. But how would you say out to God right now, my skeptical friend, God's words out to him? God, apparently I believe in you because I'm talking to you right now. I believe that you love the world the way that this husband loves his wife. You love your church the way that this husband loves his wife. And you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess, O oh God, that I've sinned and I've fallen short of the glory of God. I confess, O oh God, that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way I can come to God the Father except through Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, the bride of Christ, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord, and type it in the comments on social media for good measure. God, I believe in my heart that you raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me stand before you one day, washed by your spirit, atoned for by your blood, victorious through your resurrection. You would look upon me and say, there is no imperfection in you, and all of the glory will go to the bridegroom, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.